There we go. So, love. Love. I would I'd love to talk about love tonight. And love's a very interesting topic. And of course, it's a somewhat of a holiday, right? It's St. Valentine's Day. Do, do people know who St. Valentine was? Anybody here know? You do? Arrow through the heart. I don't know the arrow through the heart part, but I know St. Valentine was a Roman saint who was martyred. That's what I looked up on the Google Dharma. And, and so it's a, but it's a topic. Anybody not relate to love? Right? Anybody, like, isn't it kind of a normal thing for us to think about love or talk about love or want to be in love or love something or, or see movies about love or listen to music about love? Or, and and it's, a, it's a very interesting component of human experience, which is love. And so, it brings some of the investigative characteristic of the Dharma immediately, which is what's love and what's its place in Buddhism? Like what does Buddhism have to say about love? And what's the place of love in our lives or in our practice? And how does it manifest love? How does it manifest and I want you to consider this for yourself. How does it manifest personally for you, love? Or how does it man manifest um, relationally for you, love? Or how does it manifest communally for you, love? Or, or in terms of community, love? Or dharmically, how does love, how do you understand love? And, and of course, I looked up some of our um, lineage, what people in our lineage have said about love. And sometimes I couldn't find a lot, sometimes I found a little. And I love what Ajahn Chah said. He said, Buddhism is a religion of the heart. Buddhism is a religion of the heart. One who practices to develop the heart is one who practices Buddhism. And love is one of the components of the heart. Love, compassion, kindness, equanimity is also a component, a heartfelt component in Buddhism. But he starts just by, by pointing us at the heart. So you might all be aware of your heart right now. Right? Because Buddhism is not just a practice of the head or not just a bodily practice. It really includes those, but it's also a practice of the heart. Like, what do you care about? Or what's important to you? Or what do you love becomes part of one's practice. And so, I, I remember that a friend of mine, Jack Cornfield, wrote a book called A Path with Heart, right? 
very cool book, good, good Dharma book, especially because it's been around forever now. For how long when he wrote this? Uh, it says 93 here, but yeah, I guess 93. Um, so that's 20-some years, right? Path with Heart. And I think Jack keeps writing books that have heart in the title, The Wise Heart, A Path with Heart. And of course, he wrote a really great book with Joseph Goldstein called Seeking the Heart of Wisdom because it's, it's part of, as Ajahn Chah, who was Jack's teacher when Jack was a monk in Asia, Ajahn Chah said Buddhism is a religion of the heart. <clears throat> and I, and so I, I read this book, you know, 20 some years ago, but, and I don't look at it too often, but it was fun to read a little, just the first beginning of Jack talks about how, what happened for him. How he, he was a monk in Asia for, I think, six years and lived with Ajahn Chah for many years and also studied with a number of other teachers and did a lot of intense practice. And then he came home as a monk, right? He came back to New York as a monk and started living with his family, right? You know, they, they make jokes now about how there are more young people living with their families. Well, Jack was doing that 20 years ago. He came home and he was living with his family. Only he was wearing his monk's robes, right, in New York with his shaved head and everything. And he tells a funny story about how he went to the Elizabeth Arden in downtown New York, right? If you don't know, Elizabeth Arden is like a makeup place and you get your hair done and things like that. He went to go meet his sister-in-law was having her hair done. And he went, and so he was, and they didn't know what to make of him when he came in, right? So finally they said, well, go, go sit in the, this lobby. And, so he sat down for a minute, and he, you know, there were magazines, but, and he just crossed his legs and started meditating, right? And so he's sitting, and then he starts hearing some voices, and, and he hears the voices saying, what's that? Who's, who's that? What's wrong with him? And he, he, he opens his eyes, and all these women are looking at him, because you know, you don't usually see a monk in robes sitting in Elizabeth Arden. And, and he opens his eyes. Of course, they have all this weird makeup on or pancake stuff or their hairs up. And, and he's like, wow, who are these people? <laughs> you know, and he said, but he said after that, he realized, oh, he, he couldn't keep being a monk in New York. That it didn't work so well. Right, he was. He didn't have a monastery there, so, so he um, he unrobed, derobed. Meaning, I remember. I didn't read this, but I remember Jack telling this story about how he went to the Museum of Natural History and he found a little Buddhist um, uh, temple set up there, and so he derobed there. He disrobed there, and uh, and he. Um, and, he, and what he was trying to figure out is, okay, how do I practice it now in daily life so that my heart wakes up right here in New York City? 
and he became a taxi driver and he went back to school, but he still practiced all the time. And that's a beautiful part of this book that Jack knows about quite well, which is what does it mean to practice no matter where you are, no matter what role you're in, whether you're a monk or you're a lay person or you're a business person or you're a parent or you're whatever it might be. And that is part of a practice of a path with heart. <clears throat> and, and so when I think about love and practice, I often think about Ajahn Sumedho, who was a good friend of Jack's, actually, in Asia originally. And then Sumedho came and started a monastery in England and started a Bayagiri up north. Or one of his disciples started a Bayagiri. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho said this, he said, enlightenment, enlightenment or, or awakening, is practical. Just that, that's a great line for us to hear. Awakening is practical. It's something each one of us can realize. Each one of us can awaken. We are all capable of moving into the position of being awake. And when we're awake and balanced and wise, when we are awake and balanced and wise, we can love. Right? So he's pointing to something that brings love forward, being awake, balanced, wise, meaning skillful, we're intelligent, we start to see the way reality works, and love comes naturally. He says, that is the maturing of the human being. When there is wisdom, one naturally relates to others with love. When there is wisdom, one naturally relates to others with love. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. Great line, great dharma line, great teaching from Ajahn Sumedho. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. And so what, what the holiday of Valentine's Day points at, uh, points at about love is about falling in love and doing something for the one you love, and, you know, which is all fine things to, to happen and to do. But Buddhism is pointing to love at a whole other level. Buddhism is pointing to love as something inherent in our nature when we wake up, when we start to see a little more clearly, a little more directly, who and what is sitting here, and when I say here, really I'm pointing at each of you, because, and I believe this, I, I may be wrong, you can tell me, I believe if you didn't love something about the Dharma, or about awakening, or about freedom, or about reality, you wouldn't be here. That there's something that moves us from our hearts that brings us to the Dharma, to teaching, to, to awakening. And so Buddhism and practice in general, and I believe all good spiritual practice, starts to point at the naturalness of what we seek. And I think it was St. Francis of Assisi, he said, you are what you seek. 
You are what you see. Again, a beautiful teaching from the Christian tradition. You know, and we all seek love. Anybody not want love? Right? That's usually a very normal part of our lives. We, we seek love or falling in love or, or being loved. Like we all like being, anybody not like being loved? I, I'm always waiting for a hand to go up on that. You know, it could be, you know, there's one, okay. You just like to be contrary. But we love you for your contrariness. So, so Stephen Levine, who died a few weeks ago, um, how many people know who Stephen Levine is? He wrote a lot of great books, was a really fine teacher, also Noah Levine's father. Um, he said, love is the natural condition of our being. Love is the natural condition of our being revealed when all else is relinquished. Love is the natural condition of our being revealed when all else is relinquished. When all else, when we let go, there's love here. Love is not what we become, but who we already are. And so practice, which we are doing here, we come, we sit, we're all learning how to let go, how to not grab, not push away, not identify, not deny reality, but to open to the experience of what's here now and letting that experience reveal more of the depth of who and what we are, moment by moment by moment. <clears throat> and so part of what Buddha, Buddhism does is point at love's natural radiance. So I'd like you to reflect for a moment and to consider, what do you love in, in general? What do you love? Like what moves you? What touches you? What do you care about? Or what fires you? Or what brings passion into your heart and mind and body? Right? What do you love? And, and um, who do you love? Right? Who do you love? And to really just sense or feel or be aware of who and what you love, whether it's your parents or your kids or your lover or your friends or your community or your culture or your dharma practice or some other practice or your swimming or your sport or your artistic endeavors or you know, what is it? What do you love? What, what makes the heart sing in that way that we call love? And I, so I thought about this a little for myself, about who I love or, or what I've loved in my life. And I could do a whole easy talk on that because it's been a key practice for me almost not for as long as I can remember, but especially since about the age of 14 on, that's been a key part of my practice is, oh, what do I love? What do I care about? And trusting that and following that. <clears throat> and, uh, and it just, it's a beautiful 
part of practice for me in general, even before I was a Buddhist. And um, so when I, when I, um, I grew up in Detroit and I moved to New York, and I wanted to get a job because you got to have some money if you live in New York. That's a good thing. And and I had never I had worked a little in Detroit, but I hadn't. And it was it was actually a great place to work because of the people there. But it wasn't what I wanted to keep doing or anything. And I had I was horrible in school. I quit school twice by the time I was. 14 or 15, and then barely made it through high school. I begged my way through high school, which was really smart, because it got me out of high school. And, um, and then I tried college for about three weeks. It was like, I am not doing this. And, uh, and I moved to New York. And, uh, and in New York, I had, and I had, and so I followed my heart, really, because I like, I've been to New York, I like New York, I like the scene in New York, I like the people in New York, and especially downtown in the East Village, Greenwich Village, I like that scene. And, um, and so I followed my heart, I went to New York, and the day I got to New York, I got a job and an apartment in the same day. And if you've ever known New York, just getting an apartment is hard as hell. But I had great luck, and so I appreciated very much following my heart, what I cared about. And I got a job as a, as a cabinet maker's apprentice, which was perfect for me, for where I was at and what I wanted to learn. And, um, and then I got an apartment on the Lower East Side on the five, fifth story walk up, which was fantastic as far as I was concerned. It was totally cool. <laughs> now I'm having memories since I talked about New York. I used to sit on the window overlooking 10th Street in New York. I was right in 10th and 2nd Avenue listening to Bob Dylan sing Desolation Row. And that was what made me happy. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, and so one of the other things that I've really appreciated, like I would as a kid appreciated being in New York and Bob Dylan and the creative people in New York. I very much appreciated that. One of the people I later grew to appreciate was John Coltrane. And so this album, which was sitting in my bedroom for the last number of months, if you've ever heard it, it's a fantastic album called A Love Supreme. And John Coltrane knew something about the Dharma and love because he knew how to follow his heart. And he knew how to follow his heart, even taking jazz out a little beyond making something very explicit that was part of jazz and jazz music in America, but wasn't so explicit about spirituality because this, this is an album about spirituality. And you'll notice it's an album. And those of you who've never seen albums, this is how CDs used to be packaged in the old days. And, uh, and there's a beautiful poem here, I'm not gonna read you, but it's all about praising God and about a spiritual transcendence that happened for him at some point in his life and that he appreciated because he loved music and he loved offering what he loved to the world. 
and he wished that it would be a benefit to people. And if you've never heard of Love Supreme, I really encourage you to, to check it out. Um, it's, it's not the usual, it's not bebop and it's not, uh, it's different kind of, it was a different kind of competition, uh, composition, excuse me, than I'd ever heard before in jazz. This love, because really it's a prayer, is what the whole piece is. But it's not a verbal prayer, it's saxophone prayer, it's music prayer. And it's understanding something about music that was in music from the beginning of music, because music was almost always about expressing something sacred in life. And I'll just back that up a little bit. I played Balinese music for many years in addition to improvised music. I played Balinese music and we got invited to go to Bali and perform in Bali with the Balinese. And it was fantastic. And the Balinese play music at everything. And it's all spiritual. It's all about the, the um, offering our prayers and good wishes and um, devotion to the sacredness of life itself and music becoming a part of that. So one of the pieces that we might consider here as we consider love and Buddhism and practice is the paradox of practice that I often talk about and like to point at because we're not saying, oh, you're supposed to love everybody. That is not a Buddhist teaching. There's no supposed to in Buddhism. Buddhism asks you to look at the nature of reality and see what happens as you start to pierce the veils that obscure what's sitting right here, the depth or breadth of what is sitting in the human heart and mind and body right here. And so this is a little closer to the Buddhist understanding from Rumi, who of course was a Sufi, and as part of Sufi practice, he said, your task, one's task is not to seek for love. One's task is not to seek for love, but to seek the barriers you have built against it. Now that is good Buddhist practice to start to be aware of, oh, what are the obstacles? What are the conditions that have gotten stimulated or come up in me or in my psychology or in my understanding or in the culture or world that I grew up in that become obstacles to love? Because here's the great paradox. We're all here together, right? Everybody got that? We're all here together. Why wouldn't we love each other? Given it's kind of magical that we're alive here together and we're not going to be alive forever here together. And so the paradox of practice is we look at the obstacles rather than try to make ourselves be some way. Right? So looking at the the barriers, as Rumi said, to love, 
or Thomas Merton, Christian, beautiful, beautiful Buddhist, even though, of course, he wasn't a Buddhist, you know, beautiful uh, uh, teacher, spiritual teacher, Thomas Merton, he said, true love and prayer, true love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible. True love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. Right? And that is perfect for us in terms of Buddhist practice because we want to stay present with what's true right here. And even when we feel like our hearts turn to stone, we're not judging ourselves for it, we're not denying it, we're not pretending. No, we're staying present and aware of that experience because that experience, as Buddhism points out, like all of these conditioned experiences are temporary. They're not permanent. They're not static. They change or melt or dissolve or become ecstatic instead of static. And so what we seek is sitting in our seat if we're willing to be present and to be aware and to wake up to what's here right now in this experience, even when we have a heart of stone. <clears throat> And you'll notice I'm reading from some different traditions because all the traditions point at love and the importance of love. And they also are beautifully wise in their skillfulness about the paradox about how to practice or how to understand. This is from Krishnamurti, who was a great teacher in the last century. He said, using another as a means of satisfaction and security is not love. Using another as a means of satisfaction and security is not love. Love is never security. Love is never security. Love is a state in which there is no desire to be secure. Love is a state in which there is no desire to be secure. It is a state of vulnerability. That's a beautiful understanding of what's being pointed at about this heart of love. The lovingness that is part of our nature is not about security. It's, I mean, here I'm gonna go paradox, double paradox, actually, I'm going to contradict Krishnamurti. It is about security, but the security is not about a conditioned security. It's an unconditioned security. It's the security of no security. See, now I'm moving into the Zen tradition. It's the security of no security, meaning we don't have any security in that way. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is static. And as we start to relax into that reality, that's an amazing relaxation that can happen. That's an amazing security. <clears throat> and so love becomes part of practice and we begin to see the beauty of love. 
right? Anybody had not seen the beauty of love at some point in your life in some way? Because it's just, it's a wild thing. I mean, I'm always amazed at myself. I mean, I can be in a totally irritated or rotten mood or down or whatever it is. And then love just happens sometimes. And it's like not me doing it. It just comes, and it's, it's just seeing the beauty of reality. And, and so one of the things sometimes I'll do if I'm in a rotten mood or a bad mood, I'll go take a walk outside. And it almost without fail, like, I mean, nature, look at, look at nature. I mean, who made that up, right? I mean, where does that come from? Right? If we don't, if we're not locked into our fixed idea about things, but we start to see things really, of the aliveness of what's here. And of course, it's not just nature, meaning flowers or trees, which I love these days, but also what's sitting in your seat is nature. This is nature. Human beings are an expression, a manifestation of the natural. We are nature itself. And so Rumi, again, says love is nothing other than finding the truth. And the truth is we are nature and the magic and mystery and beauty of nature itself. And one of the fun things about getting older, is really cool, but I usually don't say this so much, is everybody starts to look kind of beautiful. And, you know, and it's a different kind of beauty than I used to think when I was 20 or 30 or something. And, but there is this, like, oh, you can, you can see it, really. It's not me. It's just the seeing starts to see what's true, that everybody is beautiful. And the beauty is, it's coming in every form and every shape and every size and every color and of every gender and every whatever discrimination we might make, the beauty is right here. And so the Dharma brings a kind of awakening <clears throat> that reveals more and more of reality and love becomes part of that. And here's a few things about beauty here from uh, that said, duty, duty makes us do things well, but love, duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully, right? When we care about something, we do it beautifully, whether it's cooking or studying or caring for a child or gardening or whatever it might be. We can do it, or dancing, or having sex, whatever it might be, we can do it beautifully when we care, when our heart is there. <clears throat> so, and Helen Keller said, the beauty, the best and most beautiful things in the world, the best and the most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. with a little more about practice.
Because one of the things that, that love brings as we, at least in my experience, of course, I love the Dharma. I love the Dharma very much. I love it, practice very much. And it's not even something I ever think about. It's just shaped my life now for 30 some years. And, um, and part of that practice, of, part of that love comes in many different ways, right? Of me practicing very diligently and sincerely and studying and also respecting, appreciating other people who practice and other people who teach and all that. But also it means serving in the world. It means relating to the world with love. It means engaging with love whatever form of engagement we may be drawn to, whether it's our job or politics or something else, it means we do it with love because we care about the world. And so, as I said a few weeks ago on Martin Luther King Day, I believe I read this, but I'll read it again. He said, love is the most durable power in the world. Says Martin Luther King Jr. He said, love is the most durable power in the world. When I say love those who oppose you, which he would say, he said, I'm not speaking of love in a sentimental or affectionate sense. It would be nonsense to urge people to love their attackers in an affectionate sense. When I refer to love in this context, I mean understanding and goodwill. When I refer to love in this context, I mean understanding and goodwill. Gandhi, who was one of his inspirations, who really taught Martin Luther King a lot, Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resistor, but he resisted with love instead of hate. I have discovered that the highest good is love. This principle is at the center of the cosmos. It is the great unifying force of life. God is love. One who loves has discovered the meaning of ultimate reality. That's a beautiful understanding of what it is to dedicate one's life to saving the world or making this world a better place for us to be in together. <clears throat> oh no, I'm gonna add one more piece, sorry. And this was part of what inspired this talk also, which is I saw that a couple days ago, Pope Francis, who made a stop who's spending some time in Cuba for a historic encounter on Friday with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, the, and they met these two heads of very big churches, spiritual groups, you know, spiritual teachings that have been around for a long time, Western teachings, right, of Catholicism and the Russian Orthodox Church, a meeting that was aimed at bridging a nearly 1,000 year rift in Christianity. Everybody, that struck me, right? Like they're trying to deal with 1,000 years of 
I don't like you. No, I don't like you, right? In some form, right? Which, of course, seems a little crazy, but it's very human, and we all live with that. But we forget that it's, as Trungpa Rinpoche, would, he would say, everything is workable. Everything is workable. Of course, he said that after losing his whole country and culture and his whole life in Tibet because of the Chinese invasion and takeover of Tibet. And so, and so they met, a, a meeting aimed at bridging a nearly 1,000 year rift in Christianity. And they had a two hour conversation which marked their first meeting between the religious leaders uh, of, Vatican and, of Vatican and Moscow since an 11th century Christian schism. Right, And then they had made an agreement, they signed an agreement and praised the new spirit of collaboration and said, and, and they said, we spoke as brothers, right? We spoke as brothers before they left. And they, and here's the part I saw, I don't have the photo, but then they hugged and they kissed. And, and you know, like, that's just so makes sense. Right? We're just here together, and we're all here together. And it's time for all of us to wake up and to see that we're all here together. It's not one above the other, one better than the other, one different than the other. Not to deny the differences, but to love our humanity, to love our shared life here together. <clears throat> So, so may the love that is right here in each of us, may it radiate in every direction. May it radiate for our benefit and for the benefit of our friends and our families and our comrades and our communities and our cultures and may it radiate for all beings in the world. May all beings be free. May they all beings know the love that is the basis of who and what we are. May we all awaken together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.